Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy and all the ways that you have blessed us um, extravagantly out of your goodness. And so today, as we continue to make our way through Luke, we pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight, help into this uh, really powerful gospel um, that at parts are difficult to understand, uh, difficult to to uh, know exactly how to apply. And so we, we trust you to give us what we need as we need it, as we work our way through. And so we give ourselves to you, give our time to you, for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen. All right, y'all, today we're in Luke chapter 8. We're going we're gonna to pick up in 8, chapter 8, verse 4. And in your notes, we're going to be on page 19. Uh, I sent, uh, uh, one of the ladies in the Monday class sent me a picture first of the week. She had like the whole page of her notes filled up, had note paper like stapled to the back of it, written on the back. I thought, yeah, I didn't leave y'all enough room in here <laughs> to take notes maybe. So, so page 19, we'll be right at the top. Uh, in this section, if you notice there in that outline, I call the, the mission of Jesus is illuminated. 8 4 through 917. Uh, this, is a, this, is, this is a critical part of the gospel because uh, in this section where Luke is kind of getting to the point where he is closing up, he's kind of bringing into focus the first half of this gospel to transition for the second half of it, the second major part of it. And I'll talk about that just a little bit later. But in this section, we get several things that happen that are critical. You get Jesus that he begins to teach in parables here. Uh, in chapter 8, we're going to look at that today. Then he's got four miracles, healings back to back. Then uh, he sends out the 12 on their mission, on one of their first missions, uh, beginning in chapter 9. Then uh, after that, you have uh, Peter. Well, you have the feeding of the 5,000. We'll talk about that. You have Peter confesses uh, that Jesus is the Messiah. And then uh, Jesus teaches on taking up your cross. You have the transfiguration. And uh, all of that comes to a, uh, a head in 951, right at the end of chapter 9, where it says, Now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And that's, that's the end of this first section of Luke. This whole first section has been focused on Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And the second half of Luke is going to be fin- uh, uh, focused on him moving toward Jerusalem, where everything is going to fall together and be fulfilled and take place. And so we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at some of that tonight, or today, um, as Jesus explains what all that means and gets us ready as we uh, head that direction. So with all that in mind, chapter 8, verse 4 he, uh, this is the first time he tells an extended parable in Luke. He's, he's been using parabolic type sayings before this, but this is the first time we get an, we get an extended one. And so we will read through this and see what happens. Um, today I'm going to read fast and y'all going to listen fast. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to touch on, <laughs> try to get through as a kind of a larger section today. We'll, we'll see. I probably won't get but three verses done, but anyway, that's the that's the, that's the goal. Uh, chapter 8, verse 4, he says, Now when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he spoke to them in a parable. 
And verse 5 begins the parable. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up uh, with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And he said, uh, the, uh, uh, as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? One of Jesus' famous statements. You know, in the other Gospels, he'll say that a lot. He doesn't say it as much in Luke. Luke doesn't record that as much. Um, and so here he tells this parable. And the great thing about it is immediately, verse 9, we get the interpretation of it. Because it says, now when the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said to them, now this is a really important statement here. There's a lot condensed into this. Verse 10, he says to the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, this is what the parable means. So chapter uh, verse 10 there, chapter 8, uh, this is a really condensed version of, say, what happens in Matthew. When Jesus begins to tell the parables in Matthew, and he begins with this sower parable, the parable of the seeds, I think is better, uh, or really the parable of the soils, uh, seed and the soils, is the idea. Uh, there's, a, there's a more extended discussion of what's going on because in Matthew, uh, the leadership has already wholesale rejected Jesus. And also the people are starting to turn on him to some extent. And so uh, as he's been rejected, he, he tells the parables to shut off the kingdom of God for people who, as he said there at the end, who don't have ears to hear, who aren't willing to listen. Right? That's one of the purposes of the parables. And, and, and what he quotes from there where he says, uh, seeing they may not see, hearing they may not understand, that is allusion to Isaiah 6. 9 through 10, which is a really interesting parallel. If you remember, Isaiah 6 is where, um, is where Isaiah is commissioned uh, by the Lord. Isaiah is called up into the heavenly throne room and he sees uh, the Lord high and lifted up uh, on his throne. And one of the seraphs comes over and gets a coal off the altar. You remember this? And cleanses his lips because Isaiah says, you know, I, how can I even be here? I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips from amongst the people with unclean lips. And the seraph comes and uh, cleanses him, right? He touches him with the coal and instead of burning him up, destroying him, it, it, it cleanses him and prepares him for the next thing. And he hears a voice that says, hey, we've got a message to preach. Who will go for us? And listen, anytime you hear that, don't do what Isaiah does. Isaiah says, well, here I am. Send me, right? <laughs> no, you don't do that. Uh, and immediately the Lord says, okay, Isaiah, here's what you're going to go do. You're going to go preach the good news to my people. But hearing, they're not going to hear. They're going to see with their eyes and they're not going to understand. And I'm going to cut them off. So in other words, you're going to go preach the message and it's going to be completely unfruitful. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so here Jesus is taking up that same thing. But, but here, uh, it's, 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 it's a little bit different. He says that he preaches, he's going to teach in these parables. And to his disciples, these secrets are going to be revealed. The secrets of the kingdom. 
And uh, I love that word that Luke chooses there. And, and I think um, in part, again, you remember Luke travels around with Paul a lot. And Paul, in his letters, he talks about seven, eight, nine things that were mysteries, things that were secret and hidden in the Old Testament era. But now that Jesus has come, those things have been revealed. You know, in Colossians, you have three or four of them. Uh, great mysteries reveal Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? What was not clearly revealed in the Old Testament is that the Messiah, Jesus, is going to dwell within his people. Nobody saw that coming, right? Uh, the great mystery of the church is Jew and Gentile united together in one body, a whole new work of God. That was not clearly foretold in the Old Testament, right? It was a mystery. It was a secret that was revealed after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. So here, uh, Jesus uses that same word. Um, to you, it has been given to know the, the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom but for others, these things are going to be cut off so that they can't see and understand. And we'll, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of trace that thread along as we go. There's some other things that happen in connection with that. And we'll come back to Jesus saying that a little bit later. He gives the interpretation then uh, in the middle of verse 11. And um, boy, howdy, I'm going to tell you what. I don't know that I would have gotten this interpretation if Jesus had not clearly spelled it out. For us. So notice what he says. He says this, the seed is the word of God. Okay, we, we could have picked up on that. Verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. But then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Boy, that's a scary option. All right. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about unbelievers. And he says that uh, in their case, the God of this age has blinded their eyes so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. Right? Boy, howdy. That'll wake you up. Right? Um, <laughs> devil is powerful. And so here, he, uh, there's the potential that he could come and snatch away the word so that they cannot believe uh, and be saved. Uh, it, it's interesting that in, in the other Gospels, uh, in the way they record this parable. And again, Jesus probably told this parable on, on multiple occasions, but you have almost every title of the devil in the other parables. Uh, Matthew calls him the evil one. Mark calls him Satan there. He's called the devil here. So in each form of this, you get the full titles of, of Satan, the devil, the, the uh, evil one. Coming. Then verse 13, he says, now the ones that are on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but these have no root. And they believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. So these are the ones that are really excited about getting the word, but then when it gets hard, they fall away. That's a scary option too. Right? Verse 14, now as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear but they go on their way and they are... Now, look at what he says here. Boy, this is powerful. They are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. <laughs> cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. There, and if you think about that list, there is nothing that distracts us from reality more than those things. Anxiety and cares, right? Uh, the riches of life. Uh, uh, we were just, I was talking 
in uh, the uh, Monday class with uh, the people who are in that class and about a person um, that they think they're a believer, but this is like, no, they're really not. And uh, part of what's keeping them from seeing that is they think they're a good person. They've got it all worked out. Their life's been really easy, you know. And, and so riches and pleasures, that, that can really distract us away from our need for the Lord, right? Our need for salvation, our need to be redeemed, to be cleansed and all these things. And so Jesus says these people who, who are cho- who choked out by the cares, riches, pleasures of life, their fruit does not mature. Right? So the seed goes in, but it, it can't take root in them. Verse 15, now as for that in the good soil... They are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. Oh, man, now that, oh, la, 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 this is so rough. Uh, because notice, <laughs> notice what Jesus says about this. This is so important in the context of Luke and Acts, really in the whole Bible. Uh, the good soil, they, they, number one, they hear the word, right? So you got to hear it. But then they hold it fast. They cling to it in an honest and good heart. Right? So they hear it, they cling to it, but then this last part. And then they bear fruit with patience or with endurance. You hear it, you cling to it, right? And you bear fruit with patience. That's really important. Now again, I'm going to say something that just, I'm, I'm right on the verge of, getting into heresy, uh, at least in terms of what we think it is. But there is, in, in the scriptures, there is, oh, and I want to be so careful of how I say this, because I'm going to get in so, I, I just, I, I think about everybody I know saying, what are you talking about? There is no such thing in scriptures as simply believing facts and information about Jesus and that being enough to provide salvation. No such thing. There is no such thing. And, and, and the reason that I, when, when we get here and I emphasize this, it's because the modern church has really put that idea out there. Just come and believe some basic facts and information, and that's going to be enough to produce salvation. That is not what Jesus says here, right? It's only the, it's only the people that they receive the word, right? And, and then this next part, we're, we're just going to raise this question and then we're going to ask, well, how does this happen? For those who hear in the word, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart. So there's an implied question there. If, I, if I'm hearing Jesus teaching this, the implied question is, well, wait a minute. How do, I, how do I get that honest and good heart? How do I know what an honest and good heart is? And he's going to give us some examples of this as we go forward, what that honest and good heart looks like. And first of all, we find out, it's not his mother's and mother and brothers and sisters. <laughs> right here in just a minute. He's going to say, nope, that, they, they don't get it, right? Not, not yet. Let me say not yet. Now, they eventually get it, but not yet. So there's this whole question about that. So we, we, we have to hold it, right, in the, in the good heart, right? We cling to it. And then... We bear fruit with patience. This bearing of fruit is so important. So, right, uh, John the Baptist, right? He comes proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when he defines what that repentance ultimately looks like, he says, you need to bear fruit. 
in keeping with your repentance. Your, your life needs to reflect what you're changing your mind about and, and the way you're understanding things and submitting to the truth and all these different things. Uh, in the other gospel writers, when, when uh, the, the, some of the first disciples in John, when, he, when Jesus comes to Nathaniel, if you remember this, and he looks at Nathaniel, he says, hey, look, there, right there, there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. No guy. In other words, Nathaniel is not a treacherous person. Uh, Nathaniel is not somebody that's manipulating and swindling and, and, and carrying on and trying to, you know, make things fit his reality. Right, right? That's the idea there. And the principle in that, if I could draw this out, is that in order to see and recognize truth and welcome that truth in, you have to be a person who's truthful. Right? When Jesus is standing before Pilate, and, 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 right, and they get into the whole debate, and, and Jesus says to him finally, listen, everyone who is a friend of the truth, right, who is in line with the truth, listens to me. They know who I am. And then what does Pilate say? What is truth? Right? Pilate has no idea what truth is because he's not a truthful person. He's a liar and a swindler and a cheat. And it's very difficult, in fact, it's impossible for that type of person to recognize truth, to understand it, right? And so here, as, as Jesus is laying all this out, uh, you know, the, the things I think about with the honest and good heart that he says there is that he's given us this, this example that we have to be the kind of people in honesty and goodness. We accept the word of God, and as we accept it in that, in that context, then it's going to bear fruit, it's, it's going to produce fruit. And, and let me just remind y'all now, uh, sometimes we hear that kind of thing and it kind of bends us out of shape. But the people he's talking about are ultimately going to be people like Peter. Who earlier said, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I don't even need to be in the same boat with you, right? That it, what, Peter can only say that because he's a truthful person. <laughs> he knows himself, right? And, and the understanding of truth begins with the self. Think about our culture right now, what's going on, how there is this massive push and and, and massive spirit of rebellion and chaos, satanic nonsense, where people are denying the utter reality of who they are physiologically and psychologically and everything else to come up with some kind of made-up reality that's not in line with what's actually going on. That person's not truthful. So they can't understand the truth when it comes, right? And so that's what this good and honest heart is going to look like, right? And so Jesus gets into the, to the application, a part of it in 16, 17, and 18. Uh, he, he, he now takes that idea and he's going to build on it a little bit. He says, no one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see by the light. There is nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Now look at verse 18. This is his point. Take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Ooh, Lord, that is rough, right? Oh, man. I, it, but here, you know, this, this is the thing. I read Jesus. I don't know if, I don't know if y'all, 
feel this way. But as I've read Luke this semester over and over, and these passages over and over again, man, they have been um, sobering to say the least. You know, and 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 it, and it really it's it, it really hit me how um, even my experience in the church how so little teaching that I have had has been focused on the teaching of Jesus. You know, I mean, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the Sermon on the Plain, not the Sermon on the Mount? I was thinking about that the other day. I don't think I've ever heard one sermon on the Sermon on the, on the Plain. I was talking to a friend about it who's in ministry too. He said, well, yeah, because that one is much harder. <laughs> right? Love your enemy, right? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Well, I mean, it goes further than the Matthew version, right? Way further. And uh, as I'm reading these words of Jesus, I, I just think, I think over and over again about Dallas Willard's words. He, he wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in The Divine Conspiracy, he, he does a lot of work with the Sermon on the Mount and some of Jesus' other sermons. And one of the things that he said in that book that really got my attention the first time he said it is, he said, contrary to the popular opinion of the modern church, Jesus is deadly serious about what he is teaching us, and he expects us to take it seriously too. Right? In other words, not find ways to explain all this away. Well, this doesn't really apply to us. And, 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 and I grew up and had schooling and training where I had teachers that would explain away why this applied to Israel but not to us. And I would always think, yeah, but the, Luke wasn't written to Israel. <laughs> Luke was written to Gentiles, right, in the middle of the first century, 30 years after Jesus did his ministry. So this ministry of Jesus has to be relevant to the church. It has to be relevant to us if we're going to follow him and be his disciples. And the main thing there, now don't, don't miss this, the, the main thing that Jesus says there, verse 18, take care then how you hear, right? Take care how you hear. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it's, it's, it, this, this whole central thing is about hearing the word and acting appropriately to the word, right? And well, how do we do that? Well, we, we, we hear the word, we hold fast to it, and we bear fruit with endurance, bear fruit with patience. And again, all the disciples are going to go through this process because even, even, you know, Peter's probably there as Jesus is teaching. Well, we know he's there uh, as Jesus is teaching this, but he hasn't gotten that yet. Right? None of this, none of this has changed the way Peter's thinking about anything yet. And we know that because on the very night Jesus is betrayed, again, mentioned this several times, Peter is going to pull out his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. That does not sound like loving your enemies. Now, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I could have misinterpreted that. But Peter hadn't got it yet, right? And Peter's not going to get it until 11 chapters into the book of Acts. After the death, burial, resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, his first early ministry, it, it, it's going to take him that long, right? Before everything comes into focus for him, right? Really, really powerful. Paul, same way. Paul is going to have an episode with Jesus and it's going to take him 13 years before he becomes the person that Jesus calls him to be, right? So, so as, as I read all this, I, I just want you to understand that this is a high standard, but it's something that Jesus is calling us into. It's a process of growth, right? It's not something that's going to happen this afternoon if we're struggling with it. But we need to be aware of it. 
Right? We need to be very careful how we hear and respond to the word. And then, uh, and then he gives us some examples. <laughs> right off the bat, Luke, uh, the, the, the way he places this in his gospel is different from where Mark has this. And um, John, as John alludes to it, it's in a different place. So immediately after he says, you know, he gives this parable about hearing and not hearing and the soils. What's a good soil? Verse 19, it says, his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them and said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, how much more clear can you get than that? Right. This is kind of the exclamation mark on all of this teaching. It's not just enough to hear the word. You have to hear the word and do it. You have to practice it. Right. Uh, and, and by the way, what what is the word of God? You see, you see what he said there? What uh, my brother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. What is the word of God? Turn, turn back a couple of chapters with me. I want to show you something. Uh, turn back to chapter five, all the way back to chapter five. I, I, I mentioned this in passing and told you that we would we would come back to it. But it's a really important connection right now. Chapter five, verse one. This is where Jesus calls the first disciples, Peter, James, and John, Simon, Peter, James, and John, whatnot. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear, what does your Bible have there? To hear what? The Word of God. Who's, 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 who's teaching that Word? Jesus, Jesus Right? So when Jesus says over here, those who hear the word of God and do it, what's he talking about? He's talking about his teaching. His teaching, right? His teaching is the word of God. And, and, and as, as, as Jesus says this right here, it's really interesting. We're going to get into these episodes where we're going to see very clearly that Jesus in God's plans has now superseded Moses, the great lawgiver, and even Elijah, the great prophet, the great prototypical prophet that led the people of God and so forth. So in these next several chapters, we're going to see that Jesus has come to give the people, his people, the preeminent word of God his, through his teaching. Right. And we've already seen that with the episode on the Sabbath when they called into question, Jesus, how can your disciples pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath? He said, listen, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I get to make the rules about what the Sabbath is. Not you. I do. Right? He's already shown his authority over the satanic and the demonic, over nature, over death, over disease. Right? He's showing all of his authority. And ultimately that authority um, is going to tie into his teaching. Right? His power is shown in his miracles and his healings, but his authority is shown in the things that he teaches. And here, what he teaches, it's the Word of God. And he expects us to what? To hear it and to do it. Mm. And listen, oh, we're going to get into some stuff he's going to be teaching us that's rough. I mean, we've already seen part of it, right? Love your enemies. All that stuff. And then it's going to get worse here in just a little bit. Um, uh, a lot worse. Just wow. You know, I, I, uh, uh, Ronnie Stevens, um, he spoke at... Uh, Coyle Shea's funeral. Was that Coyle? Man, I've been to so many funerals this year. I can't remember 
what happened at what. But he, uh, the thing I'm thinking about, I'm pretty sure it was at Dr. Cole Shea's funeral. And uh, Ronnie was just making an offhand comment about uh, an aspect of, of the truth of Christianity. And, and, his, and his point was that this stuff is so counterintuitive. Nobody would try to start a religion making this kind of stuff up. You know, if, if you're, if, if you're going to try to start a new religion and get everybody to come follow you and generate funds and money and build a family life center and, you know, <laughs> new parking lot and do all that kind of thing, the very last thing you're going to teach is, listen, you need to love your enemies, right? Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. And you're definitely not going to start it with, listen, Y'all, I'm trying to get a group of students here. And the first thing you got to understand is, unless you take up your cross, uh, well, no, it doesn't start there. Unless you deny yourself, (laughs) take up your cross, and follow me, you cannot be my disciples. You don't, nobody starts a religion with that, right? And oh yeah, and all that is built on the foundation of that guy that's teaching that, he is literally God in human flesh. His mama got pregnant by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Lord God, right? Who starts anything like that, right? I, 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 remember, I remember very early on, before I could even form rational thoughts about these kind of things, you know, growing up in church, I remember thinking as a kid, six, seven years old, something like that, this stuff is so insanely crazy, it has to be true, you know? Because nobody would make, make up something this out of the box, just who in the world would come up with things like that, right? Uh, who would, uh, who would uh, write a gospel that focuses on their failure? You know, uh, we didn't get it. We, we didn't understand it. We weren't, you know, we, we weren't picking up. A, I mean, all this stuff just defies the ability to understand. And so, again, as we're reading all these things, we realize it, it takes effort to push into this and to persevere in it. And Jesus is going to give us some examples of both positive and negative of what that means as we go along here. Now, anybody, questions or comments on that section there? Now, the, the next little, uh, the next section here. I, 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 now, y'all are going to, you're probably not going to like me for this, but this next part of chapter 8 is... Uh, this is a this these next four episodes are what I call a hinge section, and I mentioned this last week, and I just want to I want to walk you through it, and then we're going to focus on just just a couple of statements in it, but I'm not going to go through these in any in any real detail. These are all stories that are familiar to you, and they're meant meant to summarize things that Jesus has already done and focus them focus the focus these things again for us. So there are four things that happen at the end of chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Uh, verses 22 through 25, you have Jesus stilling the storm on the lake of Gennesaret. When, the, when he and the disciples are out in a boat, remember when a great storm just comes up, Jesus is sleeping, the disciples are losing their mind. Um, they wake him up, Master, we're perishing, right? And he, <laughs> he wakes up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And, and, and he rebukes the disciples. Verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Now, let me just say, I, I, I've, I've pondered this, and I don't know that there's a direct connection here. But if you think about it, Jesus has just told a parable about with four different types of soils in it, right? And now we get four stories 
that are stories of healings and miracles and whatnot. And those stories are meant to primarily, I think, show Jesus' power and authority over nature with the wind here, over the demonic in the second one, over illness in the third one, and over death in the fourth one. And I'll, I'll, I'll say that again in just a second. But also, I've, I've, I've pondered and wondered if in these four episodes, we also have illustrations of these four types of soils that Jesus is talking about, right? Because these disciples, what are they? They're choked off by the anxieties and worries of the world, right? The storm is about to take them over, and what are they doing? They're, oh, Lord, we're going to drown out here. Now, listen, <laughs> Jesus the Messiah is in the boat with them. Do you think God is going to let the Messiah drown in a storm on the sea? I mean, uh, you know, they, they, they should know that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear that they fully picked up on what's happening. But Jesus does say to them, verse 25, where is your faith? And notice what it says. And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Right. So Jesus shows his power and authority over nature again, as he did with the great haul of fish that we saw in chapter five. Then verses 26 through uh, 39, you get Jesus casting out the demons from the the man in the uh, region of the Gerasenes which, by the way, is a Gentile section up in the, up in the area of Galilee. Uh, so here he goes into this Gentile region, and there's a man that comes out from the city that, that meets him. Uh, and this man uh, has demons. He tears his clothes off. They can't keep him bound. He breaks shackles. So he's running around naked. He, he, he lives among the tombs. We find out nobody can... Uh, nobody can do anything with him. And often the demons will drive him out into the desert where he'll wander around. And in verse 28, this man comes up to Jesus and he says, uh, really important, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torment me. Right? So the demon recognizes who Jesus is more so than anybody else up to this point. Not only is he the Messiah, but he is the son of the most high God. Stephen knows exactly who it is. And so uh, Jesus asked him in verse 30, he uh, says to the man, what is your name? Y'all know this story. What is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are many demons uh, that had entered him. Uh, as the story goes, you know, Jesus, they, uh, the demons begged Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. Uh, the abyss is, is at least one of the places where corrupt, fallen, demonic, beings were sent. Uh, we see the abyss opened up in uh, Revelation chapter 9, and these demonic hordes come out. It's a place of torment and so forth. So, so here, they beg him not to send them to the abyss, and instead, uh, they go into a herd of pigs that are there, that, that the people in the area are raising. That's also a reason we know this is a Gentile area, right? Because Jewish people are not raising pigs, uh, not a whole lot they can do with a pig, right? <laughs> um, and so they, uh, they come out and the pigs rush down into the, into the a steep bank, into the lake, and they're drowned. And uh, when we know from the other accounts, 
that there was about 2,000 pigs. So thousands of demons have inhabited this man. Really, really crazy. Then uh, when the townspeople see it, they're afraid. Uh, you know, they, they see this man clothed. He's in his right mind. At the end of verse 35, it says they're afraid. And so the story starts to spread and whatnot. Um, but then uh, Jesus gets in a boat and he, he goes over to the side. But this man that, that's been healed, released by Jesus, he goes, uh, look, at, look at verse 38. This, this is really important. Uh, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, that is, might be with Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Now, let me stop right there. This is, <laughs> this is the first Gentile missionary. Right? Uh, every other person in, in... Now, think about the guy that Jesus healed with the withered hand. He's cast demons out. And Jesus will always say, don't tell anybody about this. Right? Keep quiet. Don't tell anybody. This guy who's in Gentile territory, he tells him just the opposite. No, you, you, you can't come with me. You go home and tell everybody what God has done for you. And then again, Luke, very subtly, uh, don't, don't miss this. At the very end of verse 39, it says, Now the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see how Luke equates God and Jesus there? Jesus tells the man, go tell everybody what God has done for you. The man goes proclaiming how much Jesus has done for him. So there's a subtle connection there, a subtle link that Luke is trying to make, make clear everybody gets by the time we get to the end of the gospel. Um, so you get that episode. Well, what's that man? Who is he? Uh, I, I, let me just suggest that this guy was potentially the soil that the seed would come and plant in, but the devil would snatch it away. But what does Jesus do here? Jesus removes the demonic from it, right? He, he, he takes Satan out of the equation so the seed can't be snatched away. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, so potentially, that, that may be why Luke puts that there. I'm not sure exactly. Then you get, uh, you get the healing of Jairus' daughter. Jairus is one of the leaders of the synagogue. His young 12-year-old daughter is sick at the point of death. Uh, they know she's dying, and he comes to get Jesus. Uh, please come and, and heal my daughter. And as they're going... Uh, and, and notice how Luke intertwines these two stories, right? He, he puts these two stories together. Uh, as they're going, a woman comes up uh, from amongst the crowd, and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. And Jesus realizes that power goes out from him to heal this woman who's had this discharge of blood for 12 years. For the same amount of time that this girl has been alive, right? She's had this illness and sickness. And by the way, as you all know, uh, within Israel, that, that discharge of blood would have made her ceremonial unclean for those 12 years. She can't take part in the festivals and the temple stuff and, and, and the worship that would have gone on. So again, she's an outcast, right? She's on the outside. And she comes and she touches Jesus and the power goes out and heals. And <laughs> This is kind of comedic. Uh, you know, people are, are coming up to him and touching him all around. Uh, middle of verse 42, it says that they were pressing in on him, right? The crowd is crushing in on Jesus. And with all these hundreds of people probably that are trying to touch him, Jesus says, wait a minute, who touched me? <laughs> Peter's like, how are we supposed to know? Uh, you got all these people here. And he says, Jesus says, well, I perceive that power has gone out from me. And so then the woman 
realizes that she's been outed because the minute she touched Jesus, she was healed. Right? She knew it. She comes forward and she says, listen, I'm the one that touched you because I've been healed. And verse 48, Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Uh, go in peace. Uh, literally in Greek, it's this. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, the word for, for save, salvation, can also uh, mean healing, right? That type of thing. And so here, uh, Luke uses that word kind of in an ambiguous sense because that's one of the things that he's going to be pressing toward. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now notice there's another one of our kind of catch words that, that Luke intertwines his stories around, the idea of peace. Going all the way back to the angel, uh, the angels that sang the hymn to the shepherds, right? Um, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those whom His favor rests, right? Who is this woman? This is a woman that the favor of God has come upon. And so Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. We're going we're gonna, we're gonna to come back to that. That's, that's an important statement that Luke is going to, again, tie together with some other things as we go. So he's been slowed down, and while he's slowed down, uh, some people come from Jairus' house and says, uh, while y'all were getting there, uh, your daughter's dead, so don't trouble the teacher anymore. In verse 50, here we go. Now look at this. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Right? By the way, and, and it, it, I think the woman with the discharge of blood, she could very easily be the good soil. Right? The word has come and it's taken root in her heart. So much so that she knows exactly what she needs to do. I just need to go touch Jesus. Right? If I could just get over there and touch him. Right? The, the, uh, the, the, the people here um, that come with the, with the daughter, the, you know, these may, be, may represent uh, the people that accept the word uh, right gladly at the beginning, but then when the pressures, right, when the, uh, when the worries of the world come in to get them, or, or when, uh, when difficulty comes, they walk away from the, they fall away from the word. I, now, I would, uh, I would suggest to you that having your daughter die Right. That's that's hard times. Right. So very easily you could see these people immediately saying, well, Jesus can't do anything about this. But but what does Jesus say? Verse 50, Jesus on hearing this answer, do not fear, only believe and she will be made well. Um, the, the, The more I have more I've thought about this in the context of Luke, especially but even in the whole New Testament, I think so many times, like here, where he says, only believe, the, the, the idea there, again, it's not simply believing facts and information, ideas. I think the better idea here is, if, if I could paraphrase it this way, don't fear, only trust me, and she'll be made well, right? In other words, trust that I'm the one that can do whatever needs to be done. Right? You, you, you understand the difference in that? Big, big difference there. Uh, and so this is what happens. So they come to the house. No one was allowed to come in except Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of child. Everybody's weeping. And uh, Jesus says to them, listen, y'all, don't weep. 
she's not dead. She's just sleeping. <laughs> they all know she's dead, right? Verse 53, this is really important. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Right? Again, think about that. Jesus talks specifically about people who receive the word in joy. Right? But then, they're, but then the difficulties of life turn them away. Right? Uh, here's people that find joy in the ridiculous nature of Jesus. Right? Everything's flipped inside out. So there's a lot of parallels there. But Jesus goes in, he takes the child by her hand, and he says to her, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one about what had happened. <laughs> so good. <laughs> hey, listen, yeah. I mean, imagine that. You've just seen somebody raised from the dead, and he says, don't tell anybody. Right? Shh. Don't, don't, just don't tell anybody. We're going to, he's going to answer that for us in just a little bit. Yeah, I'm going to wait uh, because there's going to be something that's going to happen that I think gives us really great insight into why he's been doing this up to this point. Um, So here, uh, notice, notice, uh, again, we get Jesus' power and authority over nature, his power and authority over the, the demonic, right? Uh, his power and authority over sickness and illness and his power and authority over death. But in each of these cases, something else is happening. All of these are episodes where people who exhibit some form of faithlessness, right? Jesus doesn't do this. He doesn't say, you're not good soil, you can't get in. Right? What does he do? He sees that they're faithless and he says, listen to the, to the disciples. What does he say? Where is your faith? Right? In other words, don't be afraid. You need to trust me. You've been here with me long enough to know that this is not a problem, right? With the demoniac guy, that guy is so enslaved by the devil, he can't ask anything. But Jesus cast the demons out anyway, so he removed the satanic barrier, right? The devil may try to snatch the seed away, but it's Jesus who has power and authority over that, you right? Uh, just, ju- just like in Paul. As I mentioned earlier, Paul makes it very clear that the devil has the power to blind people to the gospel. And the only remedy of that is Jesus. <laughs> He's the only one that can remove the blinders, right? Same thing here. Uh, Jesus has power and authority over illness. This, this man and the woman, they've lost their daughter. And in losing that, right, they could have been excited about Jesus. But what does Jesus tell them to do? Don't fear, only trust me, only believe. And she's going to be made well, right? This episode that could have caused them to turn away, Jesus turns it into something to bolster their faith, right? To, to uplift their faith, to encourage their faith. And then with the woman, she was already believing, right? She's, she, she's already the good soil. Uh, and so she, she's blessed for it. And Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So these four episodes are critical. And, and, they, and they, they focus us on this first part of Jesus' ministry. And I think the reason that Luke puts those together, those four together, again, because you have nature, you have the demonic, you have uh, uh, illness and sickness, and then death that Jesus shows his power and authority over. But even more importantly, look in chapter 9, verse 1, because all of that has served as a hinge to this next episode. Chapter 9, verse 1. A, a turning point in the ministry, at, at least from Luke's perspective here, in Luke's, in Luke's arrangement of this material. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now he called Jesus 
he called the twelve together and gave them, now look at this, power and authority. Same thing he's been doing. He, he, he gives the twelve his power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. See that? And then he sent them out. Now stop right there. The verb sent is the same verb form of what he had called these twelve earlier when he set them apart from the other disciples. Do you remember what he calls the twelve? The what? The apostles. Those who were sent out. Right? Uh, and the word there in verse 2, he sent them out, is the same, uh, same root that their title is taken from. Right? Uh, the twelve, the twelve apostles, they're the ones who are sent out. And that's what that verb means, to send somebody out. He sent them out, now look at this, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Everything Jesus has been doing in the first eight chapters, since chapter four of this, now he's sending the twelve out to do. He gives them his power and authority and he sends them out to preach and heal, preach and heal. Preach and heal, right? Everything Jesus has been doing. And that's a really important issue because that's going to come back, uh, not just here, but also in the book of Acts, right? The whole book of Acts is how the apostles carry the ministry of Jesus forward after he ascends back into heaven. So here they are, they're, they're getting a taste of what that's going to look like. Uh, he, he goes on and he gives them instructions there in verse 3, chapter 9, verse 3. He says, Now take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Don't take two changes of underwear with you. There, right? <laughs> uh, Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So here they go. They're sent out on their mission, and they do exactly what Jesus has instructed them to do. Uh, and, then, and then notice, we would expect to get an immediate report of what happens, and there's no report, right? They don't come back. Now, that, we, we are going to get a report a little bit later when Jesus sends out the 72 but here he doesn't give us a report. We just, we're just meant to assume that they did their mission and that it was successful. And, and we know from the other gospel accounts that it was. Uh, there in the instruction that he gives them, it's, to me, it seems that it's pretty clear that number one, as he sends them out, they're not to prepare for that journey because God's going to provide along the way with the people. And, the, and, and again, we're going to see this when we... When he gives instruction to the 72, that we'll get to that next year when we come back. But here he wants them to, to learn how to depend on God's provision through the people right, that they meet uh, along the way. Ministry is always completely dependent on that. right? So, so Jesus wants them to um, learn how to depend on God as they go. But, but also, it's, it's the, the way he sets this up. It's so that they will be humble as they go teaching. Uh, a, lot, a lot of people have talked about that even within Greco-Roman culture and, and even within Israel, there were traveling teachers and traveling philosophers, um, you know, teachers among the, the Greek culture, and they would come in and they would, um, you know, they would make a living, kind of like hucksters, 
that would, you know, uh, draw on the people. In fact, there were, there were proverbs about, you know, if a teacher and he comes to your house and stays more than three days, you better be suspicious. Right? You better look out. So Jesus is telling them, don't, listen, we're going to do this in a whole different kind of way. You know, you're, you're not to make money as you go. That's not what this is about. Right? You're going to have to depend on God. Uh, to lead you as you're going along. And so they go out and they preach and they heal and they do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. Um, then you get, you get this setup, and we're right at time. Uh, you get a setup that's going to be paid off later. Verses 7 and through 9, Herod comes back on the scene. Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, this is, this is um, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, who was the Herod that was alive when Jesus was born. This is his son. A real despicable character. We're, 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 we're going to see him a little bit more. Uh, he, he was just a train wreck of an individual. But, um, but Herod is now hearing about Jesus, and he is perplexed, it says in verse 7, because some said that uh, Jesus was John that was raised from the dead. You remember Herod had killed John the Baptist earlier. Some that he was Elijah. Uh, the others said that he was one of the prophets of old. And Herod said, no, uh, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod's going to eventually meet Jesus in chapter 23 at the trial, you know, quote unquote, trial of Jesus. But the, the reason that Luke puts this there is to raise this question. Who is this? Who is he? I hear all the stuff Jesus is doing. So who is this guy? I got to find that out. And then it's answered in these next couple of episodes. And we'll end with this. You, you now have the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Y'all all know this story. Jesus is out teaching and preaching. They're at a desolate place, right? And um, it's late in the day. And it's going to be hard for people to get back home. And 5,000 men are there, right? Not including the women and children. And... Um, uh, it's getting late, and the disciples say, hey, man, listen, it's late. These people don't have anything to eat. What are we going to do? And Jesus says in verse 13, you give them something to eat. <laughs> right. and, and they say, listen, Lord, we, do, we, we only have five loaves and two fishes here. Um, and where would we go buy food for all these people? Uh, in, in the John account, I can't remember which disciple it is. Uh, maybe it's Nathaniel. He says, man, it would, it would take... It would take seven months' wages to feed all these people that are sitting here. What in the world are we going to do? And, you know, they should have known, right? I mean, there were Jesus. They've already been sent out. <laughs> right, yeah. They, they've already been sent out. They've seen the healing, right? They, I mean, they've seen Jesus raise somebody from the dead. Do you think it's going to be a problem for him to provide food, right? Uh, so here... Um, Jesus teaches them, verse 14. Now, there were about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And uh, as they were taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over them. And then they broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and set them before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Right now, what in the so why is this here? Um, long, long story short, notice verse 17. This is really important. When they all ate and were satisfied, the word there in Greek is, is this is this is like gorged, 
like when you've gone to a good buffet and 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 you get up out of your seat and you realize that your pants are three sizes too small, you don't know what I'm talking about. So in other words, the, the, these people ate more than they that they wanted to out of these five loaves and two fishes, right? And then the disciples pick up 12 baskets of broken pieces, right? One basket for each of the 12 apostles, right? And I really think that's an object lesson. You imagine Peter seeing the five loaves and the two fishes. And now, and by the way, these, these are big baskets, the word that's used here. They're big baskets, right? You can imagine Peter just picking up all the leftovers thinking, where in the world did this come from? Now, let me tell you what's not going on here. You go read a commentary on this and all the liberals have come up with all these incredibly just ridiculous explanations for how this actually happened, you know, to try to write the miraculous out of it, which clearly Luke wants us to understand this is a miracle. My absolute favorite one of all time is from William Barclay, who wrote, y'all may be familiar with Barclay's commentaries. I can't remember the name of them. They were all color-coded and whatnot, and People read him and, 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 and loved him. Barclay was as liberal as you can get theologically. Uh, he, I, I don't think he believed in the resurrection. He didn't believe in the ascension. Uh, and he didn't believe in the miracles at all, right? He was a well-trained liberal theologian. Uh, and, and Barclay's explanation of this, <laughs> of this miracle was, well, when the boy, right, because John tells us that it was a boy who had the loaves and the fishes, well, when the people saw that the boy was willing to share the food that he had, they all remembered that they brought sandwiches with them and brought them out and shared with everybody else. Yeah. Uh, Man, I'm going to tell you what. The day Barclay has to stand before Jesus, rough rough times ahead, let me say. Um, That is not what happens, right? Here, here, what what this miracle is showing is, number one, Jesus is going to provide for his people. And he doesn't provide in a scanty way. He provides in an extravagantly gracious way, right? So much so that we not only get what we need, but we have an abundance in the leftover of it, right? That's what God's grace is, right? That's what God's grace is. Uh, uh, Paul in Ephesians talks about the Lord uh, uh, pouring out in different translations, have it di- different ways, but he said uh, one of them is he uh, he lavished his grace upon us. In John one, where he's talking about God's grace, he says that in Jesus we've been given grace upon grace, grace right more than we can possibly handle. And so this miracle is meant to show in Luke's gospel that as Jesus provides, he's not just going to provide what's basically needed; it's extravagant provision, right more than we can get our minds around. And, and imagine Peter picking up all, <laughs> Peter and James and John picking up all the scraps. Saying, where, where did all this come from? I mean, how in the world, right? Uh, it gets their attention. Lastly, and we end with this. I know we're a little bit over, but I, I, I wanted to end here because this is a great place to end. Verse 18, it says, So then as it happened, as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Right? That's, that's been the major question uh, ever since Jesus raised the boy from the dead back in Nain. Is he a prophet? Who is this? Herod's come on the scene. Who is this? Is this John the Baptist? Is it Elijah? Is it one of the prophets come back? So Jesus asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? 
And so the disciples give the answers. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And then he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, the Messiah, right? Ah, Peter's got it, but not really. (laughs) He's got the Messiah part. But he's still got a lot of learning to do, right? And then now notice, once they get that, once Peter makes that confession, you're the Messiah, that implies a lot of things, right? His disciples now know that he is the heir, or they've at least confessed, he is the Messiah, the heir to the throne of the King of David, the Messiah that's going to come and bring an end to Israel enemies and elevate them to be preeminent nation among all others, Right? That's what the Messiah is going to do. But look at what Jesus says. Verse 21, and we'll end with this. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. But instead, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. But on the third day, he will be raised. This is the first time he mentions it, right? Peter understands he's the Messiah. And Jesus Jesus immediately tells him, but I am not the Messiah that you are expecting. Not even close, right? So now what's going to happen? They're going to have to change the way they're thinking about everything, (laughs) especially the Messiah, right? After Jesus has done all these incredible works, it's time for the kingdom to come. And Jesus says, not yet, not yet, right? Now, that's a great cliffhanger to end on, right? We'll, we'll stop right there. Because I really don't want to teach this next part. Y'all read 23 and 327 when you get home. Oh, that, that, that's all that really uplifting stuff about if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to save your life, you got to lose it. Oh, man. Come on, Jesus. We were doing good, right? You had the Messiah and all that. All right, y'all, we'll pick up right there next year. 2023, right? We'll be back in uh, January. You've got that on your green card. Uh, I hope you all have a Merry Thanksgiving, Happy Christmas, Blessed New Year, everything all in once. Uh, Hope you all have a great holiday season and and, uh, get a little rest. I mean, if nothing else, you can thank the Lord that you all won't have to see me for a while now. And then we can pick back up fresh when we get back together again. All right, y'all, let me pray for us and we will turn loose here. Father, we we thank you again just for the opportunity that we have to get together and study your word. And and even today, as we we go through, uh, we we go through these episodes that have been preserved and recorded for us and kept safe so that we can read them now 2000 years later and understand these things clearly in terms of what's being said, even though some of it is difficult to apply we uh, thank you so much that, that you've seen fit to give us your word and to make it living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword so that uh, we can be trained and equipped to be the people that you call us to be. And Father, we, we thank you that not only do we have the teaching of Jesus that sets, sets such a high bar for us, we have all of his work that provides for us extravagantly in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and him sending the Holy Spirit, as we're going to find out, to enable us to do the very things that we cannot do in and of ourselves. 
And so we thank you for these blessings and give you all praise for Jesus' great name's sake. Amen.